podcast wants to match a face to a crime. This week, it's an eclectic mix of topics. Gondolas, rezoning, and bench plaques. Plus, facial recognition and snow clearing. But we promise it's not calcium chloride this week. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 71. Uh, If we teased something at the end of the last episode, well... We're still teasing you. It's not happening this week. Not Probably yet. next week. Uh, scheduling is very hard. But as per the schedule for every episode, it's time for the rapid fire segment. The Oilers won 8-3 in Calgary this week in a widely reported game that included quite a brawl that included the two goalies coming out of their nets and fighting. There really isn't a more apt metaphor for Albertan politics than two of the hardest workers continually punching each other in the face while a bunch of people who paid a lot of cash egg them on, even though none of it has anything to do with the point, which is putting a puck in a net. Three catalytic converter thieves were arrested Tuesday morning after a witness spotted them sawing under a car and the police intercepted their getaway near Highway 21. The three individuals were taken into custody along with 10 catalytic converters. Over 320 catalytic converters were stolen in the last three months of 2019. The devices, which reduce the toxicity of vehicle emissions, can cost up to $3,000 to replace, which caused significant hardship for Edmontonians, including the Gerald Zetter Care Center, whose bus had three catalytic converters stolen. Spokesperson for the Legal Defense Fund of the Accused, Matt Wolf, had a different take, arguing that while sure, stealing might be bad, these crimes didn't really even matter. Alberta has the cleanest oil in the world, so what do you even need a catalytic converter for? An Edmonton transit operator made headlines as he celebrated his retirement after 35 years of working for ETS by singing to the LRT passengers over the intercom. The heartwarming moment, due to its novelty, was captured by a passenger and shared widely over social media. While passengers assumed it was an organic moment, this represents one of the first steps in the transit network redesign, which, due to zero increase in investment, will have to reduce ridership on key high-demand routes like the Capital Line LRT. Said the head of ETS, quote, We want to develop a premier North American public transit system. That means that the population appreciates from afar and likes the idea of using it, but doesn't actually. And nothing better solidifies the theoretical desire to act, but a realistic avoidance of participation at all costs, quite like karaoke. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This episode is brought to you by Inventures, a chance to connect with the best and brightest in global innovation. About 4,000 people are expected to be on the frontier of innovation at Inventures in Calgary in June this year. Uh, There is more than 250 speakers on six different program tracks, including The Future is AI and Smart Cities Vibrant Communities. InVentures connects entrepreneurs and startups with VCs, angel investors, service providers, and thought leaders. There's also an education track for students. All of this is made possible by Alberta Innovates. The conference runs June 3rd to June 5th, and tickets are only $399 if you buy before the end of April. If you're a student, You can get an early bird ticket for just $99. You can get your tickets and learn all about it at InventuresCanada.com. What's a thought leader? You know, somebody who leads by thinking. Am I a thought leader as the host of this podcast? Oh, absolutely. A local thought leader. Great. You should Uh, add that to your bio. Well. Award-winning thought leader. (laughs) Which which organization distributes thought leader awards? That's what I want to know. Also, what I want to know is how the gondola is still on the agenda. Um, It passed city council this week. 
uh, passed in moderate air quotes. Well, it passed, as you say. It was an eight to five vote. And basically, this is just they didn't kill it. They didn't approve anything. Council essentially just There wasn't said, a whole lot to approve. No, I mean, so th- the report, the reason it was that council ostensibly was this first preliminary technical assessment. And council basically said, yeah, there's some stuff in there. It needs to be validated. Administration said, whoa, 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 we're not sure all of this is true. And council said, okay, well, continue working on it. Go and get some more information. So unlike in previous weeks, when we've talked about council not even wanting to get any information. They decided they would like some more information about the gondola. Yeah, and we'll talk more about this uh, probably next week. Uh, Hopefully. We have a special guest on, ideally. But I think there was a couple really interesting points about the gondola that I wanted to bring up. And one was that mostly councillors used the questions of the proponents and administration to just grandstand about why they either think it's a good idea or a horrible idea. Yeah. But there was one question that was actually a question that also functioned as grandstanding that I found like phenomenally uncomfortable to listen to, but in that way, very fun. And that was <laughs> Councillor Paquette. Oh. At one point, he asked the uh, proponents of the gondola and he said, in your report, it says the amount of indigenous consultation was unprecedented. Yeah. What metric did you use for precedent? And they're sort of like, what? And he's like, well, unprecedented means more than ever before in history. So... Did you look at every project in history? And like, he's being a bit of a shit there. Totally. Am I allowed to use that word on this podcast? It's our podcast. Cool. So he's being a little bit of a knob there, but his point is like very valid in that it's probably not unprecedented. There's probably been projects that have done more consultation and it hits a little close to home for him. And he, he said he specifically wouldn't go into personal experience there, but I thought it was like a very interesting sort of rub at the grandioseness of the report. The report says, you know, it can have 630,000 annual visitors. There's literally no way this project can fail. The indigenous consultation was unprecedented. And if that word isn't used in a specific and really true manner, it's just grandiose words being thrown out. How much of the rest of that report is true and how much is flowery language? I think that's fair criticism. I guess it's down to a word choice, ultimately. Had the report said significant, uh, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm -hmm. I think the city has learned the hard way how difficult it is to do consultation effectively with Indigenous communities. Just look at all of the stuff around the Walterdale Bridge and their other plans for West Rossdale. Um, So it's actually encouraging that this is in the first report from Prairie Sky and that you have people like um, Billy Morin, who is just named the Grand Chief of Treaty 6, you know, supporting the project. Like that signals to me that there actually was some effective consultation done. It may not have been unprecedented, but something happened. Yeah, uh, I think the final note on this is that you had Iveson in closing basically saying, eh, ball's not really in our court. Ultimately, uh, Prairie Sky has to convince the public and that if there's any misunderstanding or controversy when this comes back, he didn't explicitly say it, but he basically said, if you don't convince the public, you're on the chopping block. Like, we are not going to bat for this project. Yeah, he said it would make it easier for counselors if they were able to convince the public. And and that's true, but, I mean, your job as a counselor is to make a decision with the best information you have, whether the public supports it or not, right? I mean, yeah. you're not supposed to. Otherwise, it would be a plebiscite. I mean, I go back to uh, the typical question that Counselor Banga asks at every meeting. If I was a counselor and I had to convince my constituents about this, how would I do that? 
Nice. We'll move on to uh, City Council this week approved a redevelopment of the Stony Plain Shopping Center um, for mixed-use developments. Yeah, there was a few mixed-use developments at public hearing that were pretty interesting. You know, one in uh, Rossdale, there was one in Oliver called the Open Sky Tower. Uh, but the one that caught my eye was this Jasper Gates Shopping Center. And so the proponent wants to build uh, a whole new community, essentially up to a thousand dwellings, lots of commercial space, mixed-use buildings up to 10 stories in height, and up to four towers as high as 30 stories. So it's a significant development. Um, one of the things that's interesting about it, of course, is that it's close to a future LRT stop on the planned uh, Valley Line West. And um, it's a huge land use change because right now there's a lot of parking lots around there. So it's encouraging, although perhaps not surprising that council approved this. It's not in Glenora after all. That's true, right? It's not in Glenora. So I think it's a good thing. And it goes back, when I was reading about this, it reminded me of something you said on a previous episode when we were talking about BRT versus LRT. It strikes me that this is the exact kind of project that would not happen if we had BRT. I got to say, when I was reading this, I've read a lot of reports and a lot of rezonings. When's the last time we actually had a mixed-use development built? That's the question that comes to my mind whenever I read these reports, because you see these grandiose renderings that are, you know, there's trees everywhere. There's people living in close proximity. They're there's, always in the summer. And there's always bikes there. <laughs> um, and usually maybe one or two cars. But right maximum and they just never turn out that way they don't look the way they are marketed yeah and you look at the renderings for brewery district it was a lot nicer than it ended up turning out to be so i do wonder how much of this leads to sort of cynicism of well we always have these beautiful projects presented to city council and just like i stopped to think about it and i'm like what's the last one that materialized what is a urban mixed-use development in edmonton that has transit orientation. Is there one? The fact that we're both we're thinking hesitating about it. to think, yeah. I think is indicative of something. And like you have a bit downtown where like some of the towers have like made close to LRT stops okay-ish. Theoretically, you have like 104 Street is pretty nice. You have Ice District if they had built a residential tower. Not quite ready yet. Yeah, but then the LRT station, is that really... It's not right there. Yeah. It makes me wonder, are we just seeing the lag time? Because, you know, Clearview. bureaucracy and development takes time, but are we waiting too long? I don't I don't know. But that's something that when I see these redevelopment reports, they're mm -hmm. going to be going in my head is, well, is rezoning enough? Is the market really doing this? Or do we have to Blatchford everything? And Blatchford also not done <laughs> that's going to be the main thing that is the pass or fail for both the city plan and future lrt development is we'll have valley line southeast done in 21 maybe 22 depending on delays and i think bonnie dune is probably going to be that'll be a great example that if it works yeah if bonnie dune works and bonnie dune actually gets implemented it's going to be a core neighborhood right on the lrt that's going to be the success story yeah if that doesn't work I suspect we're going to have a lot more difficult a time approving mixed-use rezonings and future LRT. Um, because if I'm getting tired of hearing these rezoning requests and not seeing results, I can't imagine what council and administration are feeling. Let alone people who live at Century Park. Mm. Speaking of... Uh, how do I want to segue that? Speaking of 
testing to see if something is a success. <laughs> oh, Ooh. yeah, I like it. No, that's a bad transition, but we'll talk about bench plaques anyway. We've talked about this on the show before. Oh, it was the first episode, wasn't it? It might have been, actually, because it was the summer of administration running amok. Yes, Throwback to the first episode, uh, City has finally reversed its decision to charge $2,500 of upkeep to a bunch of people who bought bench plaques to commemorate lost loved ones or I guess like a house plant if they wanted to. You could put anything on that bench plaque. At least for the people who bought these plaques prior to 2018. Going forward, they're still going to have some sort of fee related to that. But all of the existing owners who were up in arms about, you know, not being clear with this or the city not being clear with them that the agreement was changing. They were going to have to pay this fee. And in their credit, the city totally did grant them a perpetual contract. Absolutely. So they don't have to pay that fee now. Yeah. So there's going to be about 500 commemorative bench plaques that are being grandfathered in and basically have perpetual maintenance. Uh, new bench plaques will be a little bit cheaper. Uh, we were initially reported that it'd be $4,500 to get a new bench plaque installed. It's going to be $4,200. And there's still going to be a maintenance and upkeep fee every 10 years uh, to keep that. For on. new ones. For yeah. new ones. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, I don't really have a lot to say other than this is exactly what we knew was going to happen. Why did it take a year and a half to come up with the solution? Beyond that, like we know this is way more expensive than these plaques actually cost. But you had John D from Ward 3 jump right into the discussion and say, well, maybe we need laser etching or some new technology to make this better. And then he said, well, maybe we need to do something differently and make new designs because all these bench plaques are getting stolen. Yeah, this came just a week after a whole bunch were stolen, right? So it's sort of interesting timing. It was. I, I, it has to be a coincidence, but... I find it interesting that John D is choosing bench plaques to be the innovator. Um, <laughs> yeah, if we need innovation in the city, it's in the bench plaque program. In my head canon, you had John D try to be the innovator and the con contrarian where it matters. And you had things like him making a motion to make it illegal to look at your phone while walking right. or um, <laughs> making sure that administration really sets up the rules of the road on bike paths in the river valley and all of those he got fully deserved blowback for but if he starts being john d about bench plaques people are just going to see his name in news story and say oh yeah john d but they're not going to care enough to actually see his comments so maybe that is a good re-election strategy new new approach get your name out there but don't actually have people care about what you're saying really bad at the transitions to, we have such an eclectic mix of topics today how am i supposed to transition from bench plaques to police using facial recognition not laser etching but laser vision uh, let's just talk about the item there's gonna be some uh <laughs> facial recognition so uh, this week the edmonton police service they started talking about a new pilot project to employ facial recognition. Yeah, a spokesperson said they're looking at the prospect of using this. So they're assessing the potential of using facial recognition to help with existing cases. They said their intention is that, you know, maybe this technology can help them um, deal with the existing investigations that they've already got underway. They stressed that they're not currently using this technology, <laughs> even though there's actually a number of cities across the country that do use uh, facial recognition in their police services already. So, you know, there's the first question that comes up about all of this, which is like, how do we feel about the police using facial recognition? And then while we were thinking about that, Provincial Office of the Privacy Commissioner said they think the police should seek third-party oversight 
of any facial recognition program. So right away saying, hang on a second, there's privacy implications here that you need to think about. I got to say, I was surprised that they're not already. I mean, like I've watched NCIS or CSI (laughs) and like the go to is you want to find a perp, you load up the software and then it flickers through every face in the FBI database with a little red marker looking at the facial features. Yeah, and you press enhance a couple of times and magically... (laughs) yeah resolution um, is way better i just assumed every law enforcement department had facial recognition well it's not about assumption the company they're looking at to do this with is called clearview ai and they had a big investigation done about them by the new york times recently actually Um, but they say they've compiled billions of publicly available images into their database and law enforcement agencies across the united states are using it so it is pretty well established um, for use in policing just maybe not as close to home we also know that Canada's pretty much a laggard when it comes to this. I mean, China is far and away way more CCTV cameras in China than anywhere else in the world. You often think about the United Kingdom, but the United or the United States is second and China is like way, way, way out in front. Canada is not even in close to the top 10, right? I got to say, I don't aspire for our country to be more like China. No, uh, I use the word laggard there just to say that we don't have as many. That's maybe not a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, But that's perhaps part of the reason why we don't already have this in place. The infrastructure just isn't as set up here as it is in some of these other places. Well, I recall uh, with Beta City, they're a civic tech organization. And Mm. one of the projects they unemployed was a pedestrian counter just so that we could, you know, for 40 bucks, install pedestrian counters around the city for very cheap. And the initial tech solution was, well, you get like a $15 webcam, throw it in there. And then just use, you know, recognition to match a person, increment a counter in the database. And what the FOIP office said was that even if you are throwing out the uh, digital recording immediately, the fact that you are putting a camera in there is a FOIP violation. Mm. Uh, And whether that was too strict a reading of the law remains to be seen. But that was the reading of the law by the city of Edmonton officials. So it goes to show, yeah. We don't have a bunch of secret cameras everywhere recording our every move and tracking us around the city because seriously, just counting the number of people on a roadway is apparently too much privacy. Too difficult. Well, I mean, I already think that my face is probably being photographed countless times everywhere I go. That's sort of how I operate. We're celebrities. So, well, that's true. The paparazzi follow me everywhere. Um, But I actually don't think that privacy is the big concern with all of this. I think the real concern with all of this is the opportunity for false positives and incorrect information to be or conclusions to be drawn from these systems. So we've heard all about AI algorithms that ineffectively screen people out because of biases that were built into the software, into the algorithms in the first place, you know, trained on data and it then makes false assumptions. So, you know, for example, falsely identifying black faces compared to white faces. Well, and that's a big concern. The nature of AI algorithms is they're basically a black box. You give it a training data set and then it will learn. And then based on its past experience with the training data set, it'll make, you know, decisions for the future. But if we base our assumption off, well, a training data set would have to be data that we already have. And we know that our existing police forces disproportionately target indigenous and black individuals for right. enforcement and carding. Then what would a training data set look like? How could a AI trained with our existing enforcement data set not be biased against the same individuals that our human officers are currently biased against. Uh, So yeah, I agree with you there that the big concern is really 
what does the system do and how much can we trust this system? And I don't think necessarily regulations are going to solve that problem. Maybe that's part of it. But the technology is moving way more quickly than our ability to keep up with it in the law is. But having some sort of third-party review sounds sensible to me. Some sort of, you know, data set that we can compare against. Some sort of human intervention. The other thing we know is there's lots of evidence that AI combined with people will give you greater results than either could independently. So as long as we're not relying on this without some kind of trained human eye also using the data to augment their uh, decision-making abilities, then you know maybe that brings it to be less of a concern. Yeah. Uh, speaking of concerns, oh my God, the transitions this episode. I am concerned about speed limit reductions. Speed limits? Shouldn't you be happy about speed limit reductions? Well, so yeah, I'm generally happy. We're coming up very close. Sometime near the end of February, we're coming up with the uh, council meeting where we're presented with the core zone bylaw amendment proposal, where basically all the work that we've put in over the past several decades comes <laughs> right. to fruition and there's a potential for speed limit reductions. And the precursor to that, the reports still aren't out yet, but the city has been doing some, I'd say PR work is probably the best way to talk about it. They updated their website with a core zone map and a nice tool that measures your estimated time of arrival. So you just put your home and your work and a time of day you usually travel, and it'll say, this is the current time with traffic, and this is the time it would take at 40 kmh or 30 kmh on residential roads. And go figure, the difference is like couple seconds. seconds. Yeah. A yeah. uh, little side note on this. It's called the estimated time of arrival tool. In the CBC article uh, that introduced this, says that Aaron Paquette hopes a new browser app will solidify support for slower speeds on residential roads. And I was like, isn't it a website? <laughs> when did we start calling them browser apps? Anyway. Apps are cool, Mac. Okay. Apps okay. are cool. Sure. I think the uh, really interesting proposal here is when we were fighting for the core zone, we wanted, we we're focusing exclusively on residential right. speed reductions because winnability. Um, but in the back of our mind, we're talking about keeping people safe where they're walking and cycling and interacting with traffic. So naturally you think about Jasper Ave and 109 street, you think about white Ave. Um, and we didn't touch that with a 10 foot pole, but administration thankfully is. Yeah. And in the uh, proposal, they're saying a proposed reduction of 40 kmh on Jasper Ave and then white Ave between uh, the white Ave bar portion. The part that's not, yeah, uh, not Bonnie Sherwood Dune. Park Row Freeway or whatever. Yeah, the, <laughs> the core White yeah. Ave, the part that you think about as White Ave, also reducing that to 40 kilometers an hour. So I was really happy about that. And and I didn't read the report yet, but I have to imagine that both of those areas, it's tricky to go much faster normally anyway. Yeah, you can go faster when it's like 2 a.m. and the roads are dead, but there's a lot of traffic, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of crosswalks. It's very tricky to go faster than that anyway. The fact that drivers can is, again, the problem. Yeah, with that. yeah, of course. And one of the ways that this relates into the core zone is it's setting this 40 kilometers an hour on the interior core arterials. But again, the core zone proposal was just this core area of the city with reduced speed limits. In terms of broad residential speed reduction, we're still targeting a broader speed reduction across the city. And the proposal typically said 40 kilometers an hour over the rest of the city. Default 40 everywhere, right? Yeah, it'd be default 40. And then when you enter the core zone, it would be 30 kilometers an hour. And that's what we've all been talking about. That's what the Edmonton Journal articles, Bob Summers, everyone that's been talking about has been talking about this 
context for broader speed reduction because we can all acknowledge that 50 on our residential roadways is too fast. The yeah. data shows that. We just had to have the question of, well, we know that in the suburban neighborhoods, the road design is a bit too wide, too curvilinear. To actually make infrastructure adjustments everywhere in the city, that would be too expensive and we wouldn't be able to physically do it quickly enough. And then setting it to arbitrarily low, 30 kilometers an hour, would feel frustrating to drivers. So that was where that compromise came from. So when a lot of people, I've heard feedback saying, well, these arterial roads, you said you weren't touching the arterial roads. How, how is this different? These arterial roads are, again, places where, like you said, White Ave, Jasper Ave, you can't go faster than Most that already. Most of the time, yeah. And Jasper Ave, we're currently talking about making bulbed curves. Yeah. All of these things on Imagine Jasper Ave. Like we will spend the money on the infrastructure there. Yeah, we are already targeting infrastructure to lower speeds. So actually setting the limits so that it's aligned with our infrastructure, that all makes sense. So these are very good positive changes. But again, we're going to see all of this come more and we'll talk about this more in the future because the reports themselves still aren't released. We don't know exactly what the proposed bylaws that administration is proposing looks like. Again, with that, we don't know what signage requirements cost. All of these are still up in the air until the reports pretty soon will get released. One thing that uh, was released this week was a global news article about residential blading. Yeah, I thought, well, we talk about snow removal on the podcast. Maybe we should talk about this. I will fully admit that I don't really leave my bubble of downtown except to come here, Troy. So I don't know that this is a problem, but apparently we haven't bladed the residential roads so it is a problem actually um <laughs> i'm a cyclist so i very rarely drive a car but i've driven a couple cars and it's a problem insofar as i'll turn off i live right on a bus route so my road's clear but i turn off on one of the side routes to get to my arterial road and the snow is scraping the bottom of the car and it's not snow it's hard ice yeah it's, we've had this freeze thaw rain it's nasty yeah and like i'm not gonna say darn city council needs to be fired but people who are complaining about this yeah, they got a point it's actually problematic and even i have questioned why hasn't there been a blader through and did we get some answers on that well adam grant who's the general supervisor for the infrastructure and field operations at the city said that it's about the temperature he says quote we've seen a lot of fluctuations in temperature throughout january from an extreme cold snap to above zero temperatures in just a matter of 28 to 48 hours. And that puts some challenges out there for operational crews. Uh, he promises that they're continuing to work through the city to maintain safe passage for our citizens. So I read the same reports. Do you have any sense of why that's a challenge for operational crews? I mean, when it was minus 40, I can imagine that being out there as a person working that would be pretty uncomfortable, perhaps mm -hmm. even unsafe. And so I can understand that. Um, but that, is done now yeah. and it didn't last the whole month of january it was a specific you know five or six day period and it was brutal but it's gone now so i don't know why we're not doing it now i don't see why the temperature would impact it beyond that reason the residential blading program we had a debate about whether we should blade down to pavement um which has the negative of making higher windrows but you know bare pavement is safer, safer. all that stuff yeah or retaining the current residential blading policy which is you put the blade down and you blade down to a five centimeter snowpack so that's why they do it once the snowpack exceeds five centimeters they'll blade it down and they'll make a smooth snowpack of five centimeters and and how do they do that does somebody walk around with a ruler measuring five centimeters 
they can set the ruler on the actual grader and then just set the blade five centimeters above uh-huh. the roadway height with wheels. Uh-huh. I suspect it's far less precise than that. <laughs> and that some places get bare pavement because what about a hill or a pothole? Sure. But if the temperature is above zero, you can't blade down to a snowpack because essentially there's going to be mush underneath. So as you run that blade a lot, you're going to create divots. You're going to create create ruts and mm. different slush areas which just isn't better um overall one would ask why don't they just blade down, down to the to pavement. pavement if yeah. it's already melting That's, i was literally just gonna ask you that um one would correctly ask that question and send it in a 311 request <laughs> to the city of edmonton <laughs> saying hey i just solved your problem um but he said we'll probably see blading soon um i hope so because isn't this, see, this is kind of what the city was saying with the whole calcium chloride stuff, right? Administration wanted to be allowed to use whatever tools are necessary to clear the roads in the best way possible to make them as safe as possible. And if we didn't have to try to keep this artificial five centimeter snowpack, they could have done that. Yeah, uh, I was trying not to tie this back to calcium I'm chloride. i I had to go there. You went and done it. And as punishment for that, we're going to end the episode right here. <laughs> uh, well, not quite right here because we're going to tell you about the Tell's World of Science which is home of the Marvel Universe of Superheroes. It is only 10 days left. We're just about done. So if you want to go, now's the time to go. This is your call to action. Edmonton's the first and only Canadian city so far to host it, and it features more than 300 artifacts, costumes, props, and interactive elements that bring the Marvel Universe to life. You can travel through the mysterious mirror dimension of Doctor Strange, digitally transform into Iron Man, and pose for selfies with Black Panther, Spider-Man, and other iconic Marvel characters. Which I find it weird that just like if I'm posing with someone, it's gonna be Benedict Cumberbund over there that with his like <laughs> cheekbones and mm, yeah, he's he's a good looking man. But they've got a Spider Man upside down. Yeah, but Spider Man has like a spider mask on him. Any Spider Man is the same. There's only one Bandersnatch Cumberwow. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can buy your tickets today at tellsworldofscienceedmonton.ca, and that's tellsworldofscienceedmonton.ca. And that's all for this week. Uh, next week, we'll be back with... I'm not going to promise anything because we've been unreliable about that, but we there will be, be an episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're... Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.